Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we are going to talk about what I've called the unusual sentencing of Roger Stone. Now, before we get into that, I do want to give the following disclaimer. There are portions of this discussion that are going to touch on politics, particularly if you are a United States citizen. It's going to touch on politics that is probably pretty important to you from one side or the other. I don't blame you for that. I think that's great. I like to have passion and engagement in the political system. But this video is not about that necessarily. It's about things that are tangential to that. It's about the federal sentencing guidelines. It's about how they are being used in this case, how they are being used in other cases, and how this represents a very unusual moment in the use of those guidelines, in the way the Department of Justice operates. And you can put a political spin on that however you like. But to the best of my ability, I'm going to try to avoid that. I want to talk about why this is unusual, what the federal sentencing guidelines actually do, how they work, because while I was reading about these articles, which are very important, which are very interesting to especially someone like me, I was finding that they were lacking a lot of the context and a lot of the information that I would have wanted to have seen. So I want to put that forward in virtual legality to have that conversation with you to mostly discuss how the federal sentencing guidelines work, what this argument is about, why we had this kind of mass resignation, and to talk about that on the whole rather than who's to be blamed whether or not Barr should be impeached or brought before the judge or how you feel about President Trump. I'm sure you'll have those conversations in the comments to this video. Please do keep it civil. Uh, For the most part, we don't try to have political fights in virtual legality. We like to talk about how the law is operating so that people can better understand what the contours of those fights actually should be. Uh, And hopefully I am helpful for that. But this undoubtedly touches on politics. So with that as the disclaimer, as the preamble to what we are about to talk about, let's dive in. So I brought up an older article, if November of 2019 can be considered old, from CNBC, just to kind of give the context of who and what we are talking about. And this is an article that says, Trump ally Roger Stone found guilty of lying to Congress and witness tampering. Now, if you're not familiar with any of these players or you haven't followed any of the kind of uh, Russiagate, Mueller investigation type stuff, Roger Stone was somebody that worked with the Trump campaign, worked with Trump, and was called before the Mueller investigation to basically make these statements about what he knew about how WikiLeaks was used by the Trump campaign, what he knew about who leaked it to him, all these various connections. And ultimately, Mueller and his prosecutors decided to charge him with lying to Congress and obstructing that investigation. And he was found guilty. As you see here in the article, it says he was found guilty. The charges related to allegations that Stone had lied about his contacts with WikiLeak during the 2016 election and to his efforts to get his associate, Randy Critico, to back up his lies. Roger Stone, a longtime friend and confidant of President Donald Trump, was convicted Friday of lying to Congress and witness tampering as part of an effort to hide his contacts with WikiLeaks during the 2016 presidential election. Stone, a self-described political trickster, was convicted of all seven criminal counts that he faced at his trial in U.S. District Court in Washington, D.C., five counts of false statements and one count each of obstruction of proceedings and witness tampering. The charges filed by special counsel Robert Mueller related to allegations that the 67-year-old Republican operative had misled Congress about his contacts with the document disclosure group WikiLeaks during the 2016 election and to his efforts to get his associate Randy Credico to back up his lies. And that's the context of who and what we are talking about. Now, 
on CNBC, they actually had a legal analyst that came out. This is back in November. And after you're found guilty, there's a sentencing process that the prosecutors have to go and make a report as to what they think would be appropriate sentencing under the federal guidelines. The defense then gets to essentially respond to that and say X and Y and Z are wrong in its application. And then ultimately, those are advisory. Those aren't anything that the judge has to necessarily follow. They have to make their judgment of what is an appropriate sentence based on those kinds of briefs that they receive from both sides, but they have a great deal of discretion to do that. And ultimately, what this legal analyst comes out and says is says Stone's sentencing guidelines, what the proposal will be under the federal rules that we're about to talk about, is likely to be 15 to 21 months. So a little bit less than a half a year to two years. But the analyst noted, there are several enhancements the government could argue to apply, which would increase the sentencing guidelines, usually by about six months. That the general rule is that the guidelines are designed to be around where the baseline level is and then move them up or sometimes potentially down, depending on the contours of what this actual crime related to. If prosecutors successfully argue that Stone threatened physical injury to the person he was trying to intimidate, Credico, then the sentencing guidelines would go up to around 41 or 51 months. These are the kinds of things that will be litigated at sentencing. And that's what we're talking about in this video. That's what's happened this week. And we're going to see where the 15 to 21 months comes from. We're going to see where the 41 to 51 months comes from. But ultimately, keep those numbers in mind because they are important. This is basically what a legal analyst was saying when the sentencing, uh, when when the verdict came down that Mr. Stone was guilty of everything that was charged against him. Then we have earlier this week, a couple days ago, I've brought it up in CNN politics here. Prosecutors ask for seven to nine years in prison for Roger Stone. Prosecutors have asked a federal judge to sentence Roger Stone, a a former informal advisor to President Donald Trump, to seven to nine years in prison for what we just talked about, saying that Roger Stone obstructed Congress's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election, lied under oath, and tampered with a witness. And when his crimes were revealed by the indictment in this case, he displayed contempt for this court and the rule of law. For that, he should be punished in accord with the advisory guidelines. The prosecutor said Stone's recommended sentencing, based on standardized calculations, is 87 months to 108 months in prison, which amounts to about seven to nine years. His attorneys argued that a prison sentence of 15 to 21 months would be typical for his crimes, placing their estimation much lower than what prosecutors asked for. Again, you see that 15 to 21 month number, and that's opposed to 87 to 108 months. These numbers aren't coming out of the sky. They are coming from a very specific place, and that's what we're going to talk about. But before we do, this was two days ago. One day ago, you have Department of Justice files new watered down sentencing memo for Roger Stone, which essentially said that the original recommended sentence of seven to nine years was excessive and unwarranted. Now, if you're keeping track, this is the same side. This is the government's prosecution side. What we're about to read as part of this video will sound very much like a defense memorandum about why the sentencing guidelines that were put forth by the prosecution shouldn't be followed. But instead, it's essentially the prosecution doubling back and saying what we submitted yesterday Uh, That's not right. We meant to submit this. And bare minimum, if you don't want to apply any politics to this, it is evidence of a lack of communication on the prosecution side, on the government side, about what what was communicated from the prosecutors that were actually on the line, that were talking about these things directly to the to the judge and were involved in the case specifically, and their bosses and their bosses' bosses at the Department of Justice. Now, again, 
you can think that that's because the Department of Justice has been corrupted and that it's been taken over by Trump. Whatever it is that you think, that's fine. Bare minimum, what's really unusual about this case, the reason that I even make a video about a sentencing case for something that's very tangentially related to much of anything is because the Department of Justice filed a advisory memorandum, then they filed the reverse of it the next day. And that is very, very unusual. And you can see how unusual it is when we go to the next website, which is just shortly after that, all four federal prosecutors quit Stone case after DOJ overrules them on their sentencing request. And again, this is a CNN politics website. And that's just going to speak about how unusual this is. Again, there can be agendas involved. This is a very political tinderbox type kind of discussion. But that's what happened over the last 48 or so hours. You had a sentencing guideline memo passed, put forth that went above what legal analysts thought would be offered by the prosecution. You had, in the middle of that, you had President Trump come out with some tweets saying that that was an unacceptable kind of recommendation, which adds to the conversation, of course. You had the DOJ then submit a supplementary brief that said, oh, we were wrong about what we just submitted. And then you had all the prosecutors that actually were part of that original submission resign and noisily resign. They had footnotes. They had big kind of elaborate kind of statements that they were exiting the case so that everybody knew that they were doing it and so that there was a a CNN politics news item about it. That is the context. That's the background for what we're about to talk about here. And, And that's how the federal guidelines, how federal judges are asked to sentence people, how that actually works. So I've pulled up the website from the United States Sentencing Commission, and you see a very elaborate table here. But basically, the way this works is down the left column, where you see it say offense level, and you see zone A, zone B, zone C, and zone D. That's essentially how harsh the federal government views the crime that you have been uh, charged with or that you've been found guilty of. And as it goes down the list, it becomes higher and higher sentencing recommendations. Uh, So you see down at number 43, if you are convicted of something that is 43 level, then the recommendation is that the prosecution prosecution asks for life uh, from the judge, a life imprisonment. And it goes uh, less and less and less as you go up the table. Across the top row, you see criminal history category. And that goes one, two, three, four, five, and six. Basically what this says is if you have a history of committing crimes, then the more that you have that history, the easier it should be to have a higher sentence imposed against you. Now, everybody basically agrees that Roger Stone is in criminal history category number one. He hasn't been convicted of anything before. And so we're really looking at that first column under criminal history category number one when we look at what we're talking about. And you can see here on this table some important numbers. If we see here offense level 14 under criminal history category number one, you see that 15 to 21 number that we've seen so often. So you can kind of intuit, and we're about to see that this is in fact the case, that offense level 14 is the baseline offense level for what we are talking about here. Obstruction of justice, lying to Congress, witness tampering, its baseline offense level is 14. But you also see here down at number 29, 87 to 108, which is what the prosecution actually asked for. So just looking at this table, you can intuit that the baseline was 14, And they more than doubled it to ask for level 29. And we'll see that's exactly what happened as we look through their guidelines calculation. Now, this is from another CNN article where they actually publish what the guidelines calculation, what the actual brief was from a couple days ago. 
I, of course, find this very useful, and it's going to be useful as we talk about it in virtual legality. So it says, the government submits that Stone's total offense level is 29, and his criminal history category is number one, yielding a guidelines range of 87 to 108 months. Now, as I said, the criminal history category being number one really isn't in dispute. That's a uh, an amalgamation, a sum of the number of times that he's been convicted of things. And everybody agrees that this is essentially a first-time offense. So category number one is pretty easy. It says counts one through seven, the counts that he's convicted of, are grouped for guidelines calculation purposes because they involve the same victim and two or more acts or transactions connected by a common criminal objective or constituting part of a common scheme or plan. Said another way, what he was charged with, what he was convicted of, was all one set of things. We're not talking about him robbing a bank over here and then robbing four more banks six months later in a different town. We're talking about one set of facts that led to all the charges against him. And so the federal criminal guidelines say you put those together, you put them in a bucket, and you arrive at what your mainline, uh, baseline level of guidelines calculation should be. It says the applicable guideline for the group is 2J1.2 obstruction of justice. The base offense level is 14. So you see just in these first couple paragraphs that it matches up with exactly what we saw from the table. The baseline offense level is 14 and they got up to level 29. And we can actually see that if we look at how the guidelines are written. So we look at 2J1.2 obstruction of justice, just like we were told to uh, by the guidelines uh, and what they just briefed. And it says the base offense level is 14. Now, I've also highlighted some other stuff here that we're going to keep in mind because this is what they're actually going to accuse him of. And how this works is that you've got a baseline offense level, and then you've got descriptions of things that can enhance that baseline offense level, that you get things that add on to the offense level to find yourself in a different bucket on that table. So you see here under B1B, if the offense involved causing or threatening to cause physical injury to a person or property damage in order to obstruct the administration of justice increased by eight levels. That's a lot of levels, right? If you start with a baseline offense level of 14, eight levels is a more than 50% increase. And as you can see, I've highlighted here, this is what they're going to accuse uh, Mr. Stone of, and this is why they're going to get to a level 29. Under two, if the offense resulted in substantial interference with the administration of justice increased by three levels, And number three, if the offense involved the destruction, alteration, or fabrication of a substantial number of records, documents, or tangible objects, involved the selection of any essential or especially probative record, document, or tangible object to destroy or alter, or was otherwise extensive in scope, planning, or preparation, increased by two levels. So if you add all these levels on, you've got 14 plus 8 plus 3 plus 2, and doing a little math in the back of my head here, I think you arrive at something like... Uh, 27, I believe. Uh, so looking at this, you can see that if you get all of these quote unquote enhancements, then you're going to get a higher baseline offense level and you're going to arrive at a level that is higher than maybe the legal analyst would have anticipated. And if we go back and we see exactly what they did here, they say, pursuant to what we were just reading, eight levels are added because the offense involved causing or threatening to cause physical injury to a person or property damage in order to obstruct the administration of justice. As detailed above, as part of Stone's campaign to keep Credico silent, Stone told Credico in writing, prepare to die, epithet. Stone also threatened again in writing to take that dog away from you. Stone may point to the letter submitted by Credico and argue that he did not have a serious plan to harm Credico 
or that Credico did not seriously believe that Stone would follow through on his threats. In fact, we will see that. But Credico testified that Stone's threats concerned him because he was worried that Stone's words, if repeated in public, might make other people get ideas. In any event, it is the threat itself, not the likelihood of carrying out the threat, that triggers the enhancement. Endeavoring to tamper with a witness can involve a wide range of conduct. This enhancement recognizes that when the conduct involves threats of injury or property damage, rather than simple persuasion, the base offense level does not accurately capture the seriousness of the crime. To apply the enhancement, there is no additional seriousness requirement behind the fact of a violent threat. And then they go on to cite some various cases that say examples of when this should apply. But here's where you start to get into the arguments, right? Prosecution has an obligation to administer justice. And ultimately, that should be taking into account what has happened in the specific crime and applying these guidelines in a way that makes sense. They have taken these two statements and said that this was threatening to cause physical injury to a person or property damage. Presumably for this purpose, the dog is property damage in this case. But reasonable minds can differ as to whether or not it was a credible threat, an actual threat against the body of the person in general. And so that's where you start to get into these discussions. And that's not unusual, right? You have the prosecution come out and it's up to their discretion. It's up to their judgment as to what should apply here. But when you get into the news articles, the reason I'm having this video, the reason I want to have this conversation with you, the re- when you get into these news articles, there are reasonable areas for disagreement about whether some or all of this should apply. Does saying that in an email constitute a threat of physical injury? It depends on a whole lot of things. It depends on the context. It depends on whether or not, honestly, the other person thought it was a threat because threats really do require a certain amount of understanding on the, on the part of the threat, regardless of what the prosecution says here. But ultimately, even though the prosecution is supposed to kind of have a certain amount of discretion, maybe not charge the highest possible thing uh, because they want to pursue justice above all, and it's not really a zealous advocacy kind of situation, the ultimate way the federal guidelines work is that the prosecution generally puts forth the strongest possible, highest level that they can come up with based on the language in the guidelines. And then the defense comes back and argues against it. So it becomes a kind of zealous advocacy battle, much like you would see when discussing facts uh, in a trial setting. So it's not unusual for the prosecution to go and take what they've got and to say, okay, yeah, we want those eight levels. We've got somebody saying, prepare to die. And maybe, yes, maybe that could be construed as talking about having a lawsuit, having a litigation and not be a, a threat of physical bodily harm. But it's, it is prepared to die. We can put it in the memo. We can ask for the higher level. And just like negotiating a contract, maybe the judge gets us to a level that we wouldn't have gotten to if we started out lower. And I think that's ultimately human behavior, human instinct. I don't blame the prosecutors necessarily for that. I do blame the structure for how these guidelines operate, how they work. The levels themselves, I think, are problematic. I don't think you necessarily get to a place where you are actually administering justice because it's very difficult for all these individual cases to actually be uh, something that you can fit into a table like this, something that makes sense to fit into a table like this, that this specific obstruction, because maybe he said prepare to die, should maybe be equal to somebody that only had uh, a certain amount of larceny, but also used a gun, and then it winds up in the same bucket. And I don't think that that's necessarily the best way to administer justice. And this isn't a defense of Roger Stone. He was convicted of these things. It looks like he's guilty of them. I wasn't a party to the jury, obviously. But that the overall concept is a problem. And so we're gonna, when we get to the actual second memo, second brief that the Department of Justice made, I agree with a lot of what was said in there. But one of the things that 
is really problematic for me is that I agree with a lot of what is said in there with respect to the problems with the guidelines, but those guidelines problems apply to everyone. They don't just apply to Trump allies. They don't just apply to people that have enough kind of spotlight on them to be featured in CNN and to have a public spectacle made of their sentencing. They apply to the guy down the street that is now 14 buckets away from where the original baseline guidelines would have shown him to be. And I think that's a real problem. And I think when we talk about injustice, one of the things we talk about is a situation where not just the rich, it's not about being rich here. It's about being public. It's about being famous. It's about being important and powerful that those people get this kind of treatment, get a second DOJ sentencing guideline memo when the person that doesn't have that spotlight on them doesn't. And I think when you've got something at the federal level that puts these rote rules and guidelines in place, you essentially request that to be your issue in the justice system. You have made that almost mandatory because prosecutors are going to prosecute, defense folks are going to defend, but ultimately it's a very bad system to have these kinds of buckets apply across the board. And it winds up with much harsher sentences for a broad swath of people, not just the Roger Stones of the world, than would otherwise be warranted. So if we can have any conversation, regardless of Trump or how you feel about him, I would love to have a conversation about the sentencing guidelines and whether or not they make sense as a kind of default de facto rule for how federal crimes are sentenced and who we put in prison and for how long. It's a bit of a side, a bit of a sidebar there as we talk about this, but I do think that that's important, and it's one of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation. Continuing on, we see that they then add the levels that we talked about with respect to substantial interference with the administration of justice. Because of Stone's conduct, the House Intelligence Committee never received important documents, never heard from Credico, who ple- who pled the fifth and never heard from Corsi, who was never identified to the committee as the real back channel that Stone had referenced in August 2016. The committee's report even wrongly stated that there was no evidence contradicting Stone's claim that all his information about WikiLeaks was from publicly available sources. Now again, this is them advocating for their position. They want more levels. Prosecutors are going to prosecute. And so I don't begrudge them that. I think that this kind of format has pushed them into this, but they've asked for these additional levels on the premise that it was substantially interfering with the administration of justice. It's unclear exactly how that enhancement should be read in an obstructive context. I, I presume that in most obstruction cases, this would apply. So I'm not sure whether it's an enhancement or not, or exactly when it wouldn't apply. I think this is what judges get paid for, right, is to take these two briefs and to kind of decide what makes sense, what doesn't. If it overlaps with what should be the baseline amount of the guideline, presumably you toss this one in the bin, but the prosecutors do make the case. Next, they say two levels are added because the offense was otherwise extensive in scope planning or preparation. As we saw, that is another two points. Stone engaged in a multi-year scheme involving false statements in sworn testimony, the concealment of important documentary evidence, further lies in a written submission to Congress and a relentless and elaborate campaign to silence credit code that involved cajoling, flattering, crafting forged documents, badgering, and threatening credit code's reputation, friend, life, and dog. Stone's efforts were as extensive, if not more extensive, than those of other defendants who have received this enhancement. And then they go and they show precedent, which is exactly what you should do for people that have received this enhancement and why they received it. That's what you're informing the judge about so that they can go and they can refer to these various cases and see if they think that it should apply to the instant case. 
Finally, pursuant to 3C11, two levels are added because the defendant willfully obstructed or impeded or attempted to obstruct or impede the administration of justice with respect to the prosecution of the instant offense of conviction. Said another way, decoding the legalese there a little bit, this is an enhancement that says as part of your own case right now, the stuff that goes around your case, you've also obstructed justice. So the charges of obstruction of justice relate to something else. You were brought to this court based on something that you did. And then not only that, once you have arrived at this court, you have continued to obstruct this course in adjudicating your specific case. And they go on to give examples that say, shortly after the case was indicted, Stone posted an image of the presiding judge with a crosshair next to her head. In a hearing to address, among other things, Stone's ongoing pre-trial release, Stone gave sworn testimony about this matter that was not credible. And of course, that's a judgment call in the case of the prosecutors. Stone then repeatedly violated a more specific court order by posting messages on social media about matters related to the case. This enhancement is warranted based on that conduct. Accordingly, Stone's total offense level is 29, 14 plus 8 plus 3 plus 2 plus 2, and his criminal history category is 1. Thus, the range is the 87 to 108 that we saw before. But obviously, that is a significant difference between 15 and 21 and 87 and 108. So ultimately what happens here is that you've got a situation where a significant difference between the baseline and where they wind up recommending was noted by the president of the United States, was noted by the Department of Justice, who does not appear to have been party to some of the conversations that were had uh, between these various groups. It says here from a website uh, of Axios, says Trump tweeted early Tuesday that the recommendation is a miscarriage of justice that he cannot allow, claiming that the real crimes were on the other side. He later told reporters that he didn't speak to the Justice Department about the case, but that he would have the absolute right to. Justice Department spokesperson Kerry Kupik told the Daily Beast that DOJ officials did not consult with the White House and that the decision to change the recommendation came before Trump's tweet. And then this has kind of resulted in a number of various political figures chiming in with respect to their commentary on what has happened. Remember that four attorneys actually wound up resigning due to this document. And this is what came out the day after that recommendation. So again, we've got the baseline, 15 to 21. We've got the prosecution giving a recommendation. This is the government, the United States of America, the prosecution giving a recommendation of seven to nine years. And then the next day, with an intervening presidential tweet, admittedly in in the mix here, adding to the conversation, no doubt, the United States Department of Justice issued a supplemental memorandum stating, The prior filing submitted by the United States on February 10th, yesterday, when this was submitted, does not accurately reflect the Department of Justice's position on what would be a reasonable sentence in this matter. Said another way, the bosses, bosses, bosses at the Department of Justice did not feel that their attorneys, also working for the Department of Justice, were doing what the Department of Justice wanted in respect of this specific matter. Obviously a political question, obviously something that is going to be discussed a lot, Obviously something that I would suspect that the judge in this case is going to ask the United States government to come in and explain what the heck happened here because of how unusual this is. Continuing with their memorandum, while it remains the position of the United States that a sentence of incarceration is warranted here, the government respectfully submits that the range of 87 to 100 months presented as the applicable advisory guidelines range 
would not be appropriate or serve the interests of justice in this case. It is well established that the prosecutor is the representative not of an ordinary party to a controversy, but of a sovereignty whose obligation to govern impartially is as compelling as its obligation to govern at all, and whose interest, therefore, in a criminal prosecution is not that it shall win a case, but that justice shall be done. Lofty words, right? And you heard me talk about them in the middle of this video, but the basic premise is, yes, zealous advocacy is important on each side. We have an oppositional judicial system, but the prosecution by the state it has a specific other kind of interest, and that isn't just to win, isn't just to get the highest possible months or years of incarceration to make life as miserable as possible towards the defendant, but at some level, philosophically, to administer justice. And as I said, I agree with a lot of what is said in this second filing. I disagree with how it was presented. Certainly, it's a communications breakdown at bare minimum between the line attorneys and the bosses, bosses, bosses at the Department of Justice. But even if it were just a communications breakdown, it represents a situation that simply can't happen. It has all indicia of looking political. It has all indicia of actually having warranted all the talking heads discussing it, all the CNNs, MSNBCs, Fox Newses of the world having this discussion in a time when, in my opinion, it's particularly important to have some amount of faith in the judicial system, this is the kind of thing that absolutely eviscerates that faith. And I really do think that that's a problem in and of itself, regardless of whether you think this actually was political or not. But suffice it to say, the prosecution is supposed to take a look at the actual situation before it and make determinations as to whether to apply those enhancements, that they are guidelines, they're not rules, that the prosecution does have that discretion to determine whether they should apply and not just to seek the highest number on the board that they can get. The actual kind of on the ground way that these things work is that the prosecution does try to make a case for the highest number that it can. The defense argues against it and the judge makes some determination either in the middle or otherwise on their own basis for what justice requires in this particular case. This axiom does not simply ap apply to the process of bringing charges or securing a conviction. It also must necessarily extend to the point where a prosecutor advocates for a particular sentence. Applying that principle here, to the specific facts of this case, the government respectfully submits that a sentence of incarceration far less than 87 to 100 months, 108 months of imprisonment would be reasonable under the circumstances. The government ultimately defers to the court as to the specific sentence to be imposed. Now, this is a slapdash, very quick memo, right? This is not something that has kind of the same time frame put into it as the first memo that was provided the day before. So you see here that they don't actually advocate for a specific bucket for the case to fall in. They just say far less than 87 to 108. They don't even advocate for 15 to 21, which is the baseline, and which realistically, it's unlikely that this particular case would go below right? The bare minimum that Roger Stone could expect out of this entire process is 15 months. However, that's unlikely, right? The prosecution originally asked for nine years as a maximum, then came back and said it should be far less. The defense hasn't even spoken yet, although you will see that this kind of reads as a defense memorandum. And ultimately, all of that is advisory. The judge decides on this all. So you have to wonder exactly what the purpose of something like this was, other than that, they really did feel that there was a communications issue. Maybe there was a political co-option. These aren't the kinds of things that I can say, but it is how these things work. And it's one of the reasons why I thought the reporting on this was so kind of superficial. 
that they basically say, well, one side argued for nine years. The other side said it should be 15 months. And who knows? They both fall under the guidelines. And they do. But that's how guidelines work. The baseline is 15 to 21 months. Essentially, in order to show that it should be more, you have to fall under those buckets of enhancements. And maybe the prosecution succeeded in that. Maybe they didn't. That's what's litigated. That's what's argued about by these two sides. And so it's a little bit disingenuous to say just the numbers out there and saying that seven to nine years is supported by calculations. It's an argument made by one side of the case against the other. The starting point in the sentencing analysis is a calculation of the defendant's applicable advisory guidelines range. Here, as set forth in the government's initial submission, the defendant's total offense level is arguably 29, and his criminal history category is 1, which would result in an advisory guidelines range of 87 to 108 months. Notably, however, the sentencing guidelines enhancements in this case, while perhaps technically applicable, more than double the defendant's total offense level, and as a result, disproportionately escalate the defendant's sentencing exposure to an offense level of 29, which typically applies in cases involving violent offenses such as armed robbery and not obstruction cases. So they are, without kind of citation to actual cases, arguing that when you get into these numbers, you're usually talking about things that involve violence and not obstruction. Now, of course, they got eight levels. The prosecutor argued for eight levels by arguing that there was a threat of violence in this particular case and whether or not the judge saw that to be a threat of violence would ordinarily be up to her, that she would look at the claim made by the prosecution and she would decide whether or not she thought that that was actually something that warranted eight levels. So that's why you get the language here that says, while perhaps technically applicable, could be technically applicable, could be actually applicable. Either way, you have the judge make this determination. And so it's unusual for one side to then argue against itself as is happening here. As explained below, removing these enhancements would have a significant effect on the defendant's guidelines range. For example, if the court were not to apply the eight-level enhancement for threatening a witness with physical injury, it would result in the defendant receiving an advisory guidelines range of 37 to 46 months, which is explained below is more in line with the typical sentences imposed in obstruction cases. Accordingly, it would be reasonable for the court to conclude that the guidelines range as calculated is unduly high based on the facts of this case. After calculating the guidelines, the court next turns to the statutory sentencing factors. Title 18 states that a sentencing court should impose a sentence sufficient, but not greater than necessary to achieve the statutory goals of sentencing. In doing so, the section delineates several factors that the court must consider when imposing a sentence, and the sentencing range is set forth in the guidelines is but one of those factors. As the United States Supreme Court has stated, while a sentencing court must give respectful consideration to the guidelines, it is well settled that Booker permits the court to tailor the sentence in light of other statutory concerns as well. In fact, the Supreme Court has stated that a sentencing court may not presume that the guidelines range is reasonable, but must make an individualized assessment based on the facts presented, which is exactly right, right? When we talk about the administration of justice, we are not numbers. People in specific cases don't want to fall into buckets that have been deigned by some commission in the late 80s and that have been amended all the way through 2018. The court and the Supreme Court has rightly said, judge, you can't just take that number in the bucket and apply it. You have to actually consider the facts of the case before you. But as I said earlier in the video, one of the main issues here is that, yes, this philosophically should apply to everyone, but we're seeing it apply in this very specific case when it should be applied to everyone. And I think it's useful to kind of shine a spotlight on these issues, but it's not terribly useful if it only ever winds up applying to those that wind up with their picture on CNN or Fox News or where have you. 
Section 3553A also directs the court to consider, among other criteria, the nature and circumstances of the offense, the need to afford adequate deterrence to criminal conduct, and the need to avoid unwarranted sentencing disparities. Here, there are several facts and circumstances supporting the imposition of a sentence below 87 to 108 months of imprisonment. First, as noted above, the most serious sentencing enhancement in this case, the eight-level enhancement under the threatening to cause physical injury subsection, has been disputed by the victim of that threat, Randy Credico, who asserts that he did not perceive a genuine threat from the defendant, but rather that I never in any, felt, in any way felt that Stone himself posed a direct physical threat to me or my dog. While Mr. Credico's subjective beliefs are not dispositive as to this enhancement, the court may consider them when assessing the impact of implying the enhancement particularly given the significant impact that that enhancement has on the defendant's total guidelines range. In other words, they're not disagreeing with the prosecution that it doesn't require the subject to actually be threatened by the, the language, but that you can take into account the fact that they weren't threatened by the language when deciding whether to actually raise the level of criminal offense eight full levels, which makes a significant difference in the sentencing. Second, the two-level enhancement for obstruction of justice overlaps to a degree with the offense conduct in this case. Moreover, it is unclear to what extent the defendant's obstructive conduct actually prejudiced the government at trial. Now, that's the 3C1 obstruction, which is about obstructing your current case. Uh, that's violating the social media gag order, the thing with the crosshairs that they mentioned. And basically, the argument here is... Was the government actually affected by those activities? If they weren't, there wasn't obstruction. And that's that's kind of the argument. I think, in my opinion, that's much weaker than was somebody actually threatened and the significance of that enhancement. Uh, but they make the claim all the same, again, because this is essentially a defense document, which is why this is so weird. Third, the court must avoid unwarranted sentencing disparities. In its prior filing, the government directed the court's attention to a non-exhaustive list of witness tampering, false statement, and obstruction of justice cases that resulted in sentences of 30 months, 13 months, 6 months, 12 months, and 35 months. While these cases involved lesser offense conduct, the sentences imposed cons constituted a fraction of the penalty suggested by the advisory guidelines in this case. Said another way, for the most part, the administration of justice is supposed to have similar kinds of sentences related to similar kinds of offenses. Now, as the government arguing against itself admits here, these cases involve lesser offense conduct. So the highest one here is 35 months and something along those lines is probably warranted just based on this argument that the government is making here. So 35, 40, maybe even 50 months. But when we start to get into 108 months, they think they've got a good argument and I tend to agree. Finally, the court also should consider the defendant's advanced age, health, personal circumstances, and lack of criminal history in fashioning an appropriate sentence. As noted above, a sentence of 87 to 108 months more typically has been imposed for defendants who have higher criminal history categories or who obstructed justice as part of a violent criminal organization. The defendant committed serious offenses and deserves a sentence of incarceration that is sufficient but not greater than necessary to set the set, satisfy the factors set forth in the sentencing guidelines. Based on the facts known to the government, a sentence of between 87 to 108 months of imprisonment, however, could be considered excessive and unwarranted under the circumstances. Ultimately, the government defers to the court as to what specific sentence is appropriate under the facts and circumstances of this case. So I think reading that, you can understand exactly why we wind up with a headline about four federal prosecutors quitting the case, right? That secondary filing absolutely cuts the legs out of what they were asking for in their own sentencing memorandum and probably with a lack of communications both from them to their bosses and from their bosses down to them before they were about to do it. And so 
we as lawyers kind of have to take into account whether or not we can stand behind what we are doing in court, what we are doing in respect to the representation of our clients and other matters, whether we're negotiating contracts or doing something else. And if it becomes a circumstance where we can't defend the actions that are taken on our side's behalf, we have an obligation to, to step away. Now, is that political in nature? Undoubtedly so. I have no doubt that there were political motivations behind virtually all aspects of this from all sides. However, I don't think that it means that we can't have a good discussion about what happened here. And when we look at things like whether or not these sentences should apply, how they should apply, what actually occurred between these two memorandums, how we arrived at these four federal prosecutors quitting, I think the best way to have that conversation is to have the information about what occurred, how we wound up going from group number 14 to group number 29, what exactly the government said in the first instance, what it said in the second instance to say, hey, that's way too much. What we might be able to apply more generally based on that, especially second memorandum to the rest of the federal crimes that are committed and sentenced on a daily basis. You know, one of the things that came out of that second memorandum is maybe if you wind up doubling the offense level, that's a potential problem. And when we look at what was actually applied, they applied every bucket they could, right? You don't see A and C highlighted because B says apply the greatest. And they actually couldn't really advocate for C because there wasn't a conviction under these various sections. So they went for the highest they could. They got 14 plus 8 plus 3 plus 2. They even tacked on a secondary obstruction of justice. That's about as high as they could go. And whether or not that is warranted probably depends on how you feel about this whole process. But I think it's worthy of conversation. And it's an, a conversation that is obfuscated when you just have journalistic articles that say, well, one side says 108, and one side says 15. Who knows? I guess we'll see what the judge will do. And only really kind of dives into this when the Department of Justice does something wacky, like submit a second memorandum the day after the first one saying, hey, that memorandum we just submitted, we didn't mean that, judge. Uh, should be a lot less than that. We don't have an exact number, uh, but look at this stuff. 35 months maybe is a little bit more appropriate. So do what you will. We're not telling you how to do your job, but that one we submitted yesterday, totally wrong. And wow, that's an interesting set of affairs. I have no doubt this is going to be something that is discussed for a long period of time. Might even be a conversation in Congress uh, about what happened with all this stuff. Again, I'm not trying to make a political statement so much about these things, but simply to point out what happened, how it happened, and exactly why it happened, right? The federal guidelines are pretty rote. Prosecutors have incentives, both for their career success and just how they operate, to go and seek the highest number possible. Ordinarily, you'd have the defense essentially issue a memorandum that probably looked a lot like what the Department of Justice submitted yesterday, and they have yet to do that. Defense will probably submit another memorandum, I would imagine, on this. And ultimately, it's likely that the judge is going to call some people in to explain their actions. But at the end of the day, I would love to see the Department of Justice in general, prosecutors across the board in general, take more seriously their obligation to administer justice, to actually look at what they're doing with respect to guidelines, whether they're state or federal, and decide on exactly what should apply here, not based on hitting the highest number, but hitting the number that most aligns with the conduct presented before them and what a penalty really should be. I don't blame the prosecutors for going and seeking that number. I don't blame them for resigning if they were undercut and the Department of Justice didn't tell them what they were planning on doing and didn't communicate with them one way or the other. I do blame both sides, essentially, for resulting in this situation where I don't blame anybody for not having faith in the judicial system or the Department of Justice or the prosecution or the Mueller report or anything related to any of this. And I really do think that those institutions are important. 
for a country that's based on the rule of law and not to have just the rule of men govern us all. That's been Virtual Legality for today. I very much appreciate you checking it out. If you found this interesting, please share it. Please like, please subscribe to the channel. We don't generally talk about sentencing guidelines here in Virtual Legality, but we do talk about pop culture, things that pop up on my radar in video games, software, technology, movies, television, elsewise. And occasionally we do talk about these more serious issues, hopefully not just cratering into a political discussion in the comments to my uh, video here. I will be trying to comment on people's uh, thoughts uh, on this as, as we go forward, but hopefully adding a little bit of illumination, adding a little of education uh, about how this all works and, and why the stories that you see on this uh, maybe don't tell the full story and, and how better understanding and better information can get you to a better place in understanding it yourself. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. If you listen to it in its podcast form, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.